I think sometimes we tend to romanticize these guys, these fishermen that Jesus calls to be his first followers. If, like me, you grew up singing, I will make you fishers of men in Sunday school. If you've seen Brad Pitt fly fishing in A River Runs Through It. <laughs> or I think of that, the beautiful hymn that we're going to sing later on this morning, the words of the 20th century Mississippi poet William Percy. They cast their nets in Galilee just off the fields of brown. Such happy, simple fisher folk until the Lord came down. Isn't that a sweet Bible image? They're innocently hauling in their haul of fish. They drop everything as soon as Jesus calls them. The fishermen that Matthew is describing in the gospel, however, are, are anything but innocent boys indulging a favorite pastime. Fishermen in first century Roman society, fishermen ranked dead last in Cicero's list of, uh, of respectable occupations. They were suspected of being cheats, probably because they were kind of like low men on the totem pole in this complicated and sometimes very corrupt structure of family-run fishing syndicates operating under local bosses. This is not the world of free market capitalism, right? These are not like entrepreneurs going out in their boat and casting in their hall and selling it in the open marketplace. This is a world of, of like mob boss style client kings who funnel taxes and income up the ladder to the emperor while offering protection to those who are underneath them. This is more like the Godfather, frankly, than it is like a river runs through it. Peter and Andrew and James and John are probably part of one of these Galilean fishing syndicates. Their, their families have probably purchased a contract with Roman agents. That's what allows them to fish in these, these waters. This, this water is controlled by Rome, right? And that, that contract obligates their families then to kick back a certain quantity of their catch into the hands of their Gentile bosses. This is the Roman patronage system. This is probably why their Jewish fellow Jewish believers in Capernaum might have looked down on these guys with a certain degree of suspicion. They are marginal figures by everybody's estimation. These are low-level mafia associates, if you like. They're eking out a, a subsistence-level income in complicity with what is seen by their fellow Jewish believers as an occupying emperor. This is empire. This is Galilee of the Gentiles. That's how Isaiah referred to it years, hundreds of years ago when it was under Assyrian occupation. Now the occupying army is Rome, but this is still remembered by the people, right? This is the land of Zebulun. This is the land of Naphtali. This is the, the long-promised territory, according to Hebrew scripture, promised to the children of Israel. And it's a land that has almost always been under some form of occupation, under somebody's oppressive thumb. That's what Galilee of the Gentiles, that's what that means. Galilee of the Romans. We might say, Galilee of the Mafia Dons. This is Herod's territory. Herod has just had John the Baptist killed. That's how this story starts, right? It starts with a murder. Jesus' cousin is murdered. So then Jesus moves into the neighborhood to continue his cousin John's movement. He situates himself right in the middle of hostile territory, and then he starts recruiting followers from among the enemy's ranks. That's one way of understanding what Jesus means when he calls out, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the, the empire of God, we might say the family of God. Use, use whatever political or social metaphor you want for this thing. What Jesus is doing is snatching away the emperor's foot soldiers and inviting them into this alternative system of 
I mean, what is it, kinship economics, a, a radically different pattern of belonging? He says, you don't have to work for a corrupt Roman overlord. From now on, you will be fishing for people, not for Herod. Commentators have puzzled for, for many centuries over this, this little detail in Matthew's gospel. The writer says that after hearing Jesus' call, they immediately left their nets and followed him. Why immediately? Like, why is that important? What, does, what is Matthew trying to do here? Underscore the, the immediacy of, of faith's response, this total willingness to, to follow Jesus, no questions asked. My guess is that these four guys hear Jesus' call exactly in the way he intends them to. This is not a command. This is release, right? This is liberation. This is, this is an escape hatch out of a life that is destroying them and their families. He says, you don't, you don't have to live this way. Come, come join me. Come join the resistance, the, the kingdom of God, the kingdom for which you have been longing, this long-promised kingdom of justice and wholeness, shalom, right? Peace, the, the realm of God, the kingdom of heaven is here. Heaven is now, he says. Heaven is, is right in front of you, right before your very eyes. It's a rescue mission that he's on. So you better believe that these guys leave their nets immediately at the drop of a hat. Those nets represent everything that has them caught, right? The, the debt that is strangling them, the loyalties that divide their hearts, the, the daily injustice, the violence that haunts their community. And this is their way out, right? It's like, it's like handing the key to the prison to the prisoners themselves. You don't have to live this way anymore. It begins, as these stories often begin, among rebellious young men with big dreams and nothing to lose. And the movement that begins its life as a, as a kind of political revolution starts to become something a little bit different as it evolves, something that, that strikes at the very heart of what it means to belong to a world of politics and economics and power. In Matthew, Jesus calls it the kingdom of heaven, the, the empire of heaven, we might say, the, the republic of heaven. And I think Jesus means us to hear that word with all of its political overtones. This is not pie in the sky when you die. It's a way of reorganizing human society so that the peace of God can flourish. The story about calling people away from their nets, which is to say all of the way in which in which the world that we live in, what my friend Elaine calls the, the dominant culture, all the ways in which that culture has, has seduced us, trapped us with this myth about what it means to, to belong, what it means to make it. It's like, you know, your father was a fisherman, Peter. That's all you will ever be. They learned to believe that story about themselves. Don't talk back to Rome. Rome will crucify you. I mean, we do this today, right? Who taught you how to fake it? Who taught you to pretend? Who taught you how to, how to lie about who you really are, how to manufacture a smile and put it on and pretend that everything's okay? Who taught you to avert your eyes so that you wouldn't get beat up? Who taught you to dress so that you wouldn't attract the wrong kind of attention? Who taught you to hide yourself, diminish yourself, take up less space? Who taught you how to fish? What did they tell you you were fishing for? and on whose behalf. So Jesus comes along 
walking along the shores of these waters, this beautiful Sea of Galilee. I mean, some of you have seen this place, right? The Sea of Galilee is beautiful. It was beautiful then, it's, it's beautiful now. And Jesus says these waters and every creature they contain were created by God. The water does not belong to Rome. The water belongs to God. The fish belong to God. And more to the point, you, you belong to God. You don't belong to Herod or to Caesar or to your father Zebedee's fishing syndicate. You don't have to be caught in these nets that you were taught to cast. You can choose to walk away. Those nets have no power over you anymore. They cast their nets in Galilee just off the fields of brown, such happy, simple fisher folk before the Lord came down, contented, peaceful fishermen, Percy writes, before they ever knew the peace of God which filled their hearts brimful and broke them too. This vision catches them, this incredible vision of what the peace of God looks like, feels like, when it's lived out by ordinary men and women who are committed to building the kind of world they long for their kids to inherit. The peace of God, the, the shalom of God, the well-being, the, the wholeness, the justice of God. I mean, we, we bless you in the name of that peace every single week. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, guide your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God. It's another way of saying we bless you with the vision of something amazing, something that is marvelous. And being blessed with that vision will come with a cost attached. The peace of God which fills their hearts brimful, it broke them, too. Walter Percy, the, William Percy, the guy who wrote those words, was raised as a white boy on a southern plantation. He sent, spent his youth fishing innocently off the levee. He went off to University of the South at Suwannee, then to Harvard Law, his, his stellar education funded, he knew it, on the back of enslavement and sharecropping. He was a, a queer man a poet as well as a lawyer. He hobnobbed with Langston Hughes in the 20s in the Harlem Renaissance set. He edited the Yale Younger Poets series. He was a successful writer. And what I hear in this poem, this hymn he wrote, is this peace of God, the shalom of God, the, the well-being, the justice of God. That vision haunted him, I think, throughout his life. He knew somehow the cost that he would bear if he truly embraced what that vision that dream would mean. I mean, he spells it out in the hymn, right? Young John, who trimmed the flapping sail, homeless on Patmos died. Peter, who hauled the teeming, the teeming net, head down, was crucified. So Percy writes, the peace of God, it is no peace, but strife closed in the sod. Yet let us pray for just one thing, the marvelous peace of God. I think some of us spend our whole lives mending somebody else's nets, right? We're like Peter and Andrew, James and John, plying our trade with expert hands day in and day out. Not, not innocent fisher folk, but complicit. And we know ourselves to be complicit in our own entrapment. Will Percy knew himself to be complicit, the nets of Injustice, the nets of white supremacy, the nets of passing as a bachelor lawyer among polite so Southern society, right? Those nets caught him before he ever had a chance to figure out who he really was. 
and he lived the rest of his life reckoning with those nets. His travel gave him a sense of what might be possible, New York, Paris, even in Suwannee, Tennessee, where he participated in these incredible queer salons that were happening in Suwannee in the 30s and 40s. That's a, a footnote in history, but it's amazing. The most daring poetry he wrote, he published it under a pseudonym. He wouldn't put his name to it. Some of us know that life. Some of us have walked away from the nets. Some of you sitting in this room, people, people who know what it feels like, as Matthew writes, to leave your nets and follow a different voice. That comes at a cost, right? You know this. I mean, I think about Zebedee, the father left standing in the boat holding the nets. I wonder what story he told his wife later that night. What happened on the sea today? Where are the boys? They're gone. The peace of God, it is no peace. It's strife closed in the sod. This is not a peace in the way that the world thinks of peace. I mean, more to the point, this is not the peace of the Pax Romana, right? This is not a peace that papers over differences and pretends that everybody is safe so long as nobody starts to name uncomfortable truths. The peace of God is not absence of conflict. It's not misty-eyed nostalgia for a world that never was. The peace of God is a vision so compelling, so beautiful, that when it catches you up, breathless in its grasp, to abandon it and turn back to your nets would do irreparable damage to your soul. The peace of God is the thing you can't forget. It's the, the taste that your mouth will always crave. It's a peace that divides families and ruins economies and destroys normal, polite, functioning human lives. It's no peace. It's revolution. It is the only thing that matters. The peace of God, it is no peace. It is strife closed in the sod. And yet, like many of you, I pray for just one thing, that he would come calling my name, inviting me to stop playing around with these stupid nets, the things that I think matter so much to the world that one day the master might call me away from everything I think I know for sure and show me a vision of something better, something beautiful. I live my life in thrall to that vision, to that promise. What happens when he comes calling your name?